Hello, one and all. I am Jeb, and I am back with a new episode of The Angry Author. It has been a while. Uh, two weeks back, my son was out on spring break. Last week, I uh, took a trip to the beautiful Outer Banks for a sort of a mini family reunion. So finally, finally had the chance to, to get back, uh, get some writing done, and... Uh, uh, lay down some more ramblings for everybody to to take a listen to and hopefully get some amount of entertainment out of, even if it's just at how much I ramble exactly. Anyway, um, through the first few episodes, and a uh, big thank you to everybody that's, that's listened to those and given, given me any feedback on that. It is much appreciated. I have had a, a few people ask me about getting the podcast available through uh, Apple Podcasts, which is something I am working on. Big thing with Apple is when you submit, they they test everything to make sure everything seems legit, stuff like that. And the the first you know the first episode was really short, something you know in the neighborhood of like twenty minutes. So Apple pretty much <laughs> they read that as being test material. They don't like to prove that stuff. So, uh, the plan at some point this week is going to be pretty much to, to combine the first three episodes, um, and, and get that submitted. So, uh, if you see it pop up on the, uh, the Apple podcast store anytime, uh, in the next couple of weeks, just be aware that the, the first episode is probably technically going to be comprised of the first three that you would find on YouTube or SoundCloud. So just wanted to throw that out there for everybody. So, uh, so that everybody is aware of that, um, starting off, I, I you know, something that's been, uh, that I, of course I've been paying huge attention to. And it's a subject that I, I tackled in my second podcast um, is the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, I'm a big, big Carolina Hurricanes fan. Uh, I have been since the team moved here in 97. Um, you know, and anybody that follows the NHL knows that the Hurricanes had gone a decade. 2009 was the last time they were in the playoffs. Uh, and you talk about a team that's this feast or famine. They, you know, you look at their their last three trips to the playoffs. In two thousand two, they got to the Cup Finals and lost to Detroit. Oh six, they won the Cup. Uh, two thousand nine, which was the last year they were in the playoffs, they made it to the conference final. So if they get in, they they have a pretty good track record to do a record of doing you know a pretty fair amount of damage. Um. In that previous podcast, I discussed you know their first round matchup with the Capitals, the things that they would have to do, and they did it. Um, with with a few exceptions, you know, I felt like the like the Hurricanes really were able to to kind of neutralize Washington's attack, which was key because the the big advantage that the Capitals had was their offensive firepower, their their depth up front. Um, yeah, there was a 6-0 loss for the Hurricanes in there, so that's not to say that every game went, went according to plan, but, uh, you know, we were actually at, at the Outer Banks for game seven, and I'll be honest, early in the game, um, you know, it was looking tough, 
um, by by the time it hit overtime, uh, you know, I was down in, in our bedroom. I was using just using my cell phone to stream the game. And uh, once overtime started, I just there was this feeling, and and people that follow the Hurricanes. And have for some amount of time, we'll, you know, we'll know what I'm getting at. There's just something about the way the team's been playing. I just did not think that they were going to lose that game. Of course, you know, in the playoffs, game seven overtime, all it takes is one bad bounce, and it could have gone the other way. But you know, there was just the, just the feeling that that they were going to pull that one out, and they and they did. Um, then got a, a whopping two days off. Just pretty much a break, like you get in between games of a series, um, to to start facing the New York Islanders, who have had a remarkable season. Uh, you know, the fact that that Lou Lamorello came in as a GM, they brought in Barry Trotz, who was fresh off uh, winning the Stanley Cup with the Capitals last season. You know, people gave them credit for those moves, and they should because those are those are great moves for the team to have made, but. Losing Tavares to Toronto as a free agent threw a lot of doubt on the team and how they would perform. But, you know, Robin Leonard had, has been great for them all season. Uh, was a big, big part of them uh, eliminating Pittsburgh in the first round in the sweep. So, no, you know, nothing to be taken lightly. And in the first two games, there was a lot of... A lot of back and forth, a lot of a lot of chippiness. The puck was bouncing around a lot. Uh, you know, game one went to overtime, tied at zero. Uh, you know, Hurricanes were able to pull out an overtime winner there. Uh, game two, all it took was forty eight seconds. They they went to the third period. Um, you know, trailing one to nothing, they scored two goals in in forty eight seconds, and and that was it. They they you know the Hurricanes didn't play particularly poorly in game two, but, uh, you know, they definitely didn't, you know, they did, they didn't maintain that same level of play throughout the game, which, which is unfortunate, but at the end of the day, the wins are what counts. So we've got, uh, game three tomorrow at PNC in Raleigh. So that, that's going to be a, an absolute madhouse. People are going to be going nuts. It's going to be crazy. So definitely, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, of course, you know, before I end this little section, can't talk about the Hurricanes in the playoffs this year without talking about, uh, you know, without talking about injuries. Uh, you know, through the course of the first round, uh, Svechnikov went out, Furlan went out, Martinuk had an injury that that had been reaggravated. Um, you know, in this series now we've had. Uh, Trevor Van Riemsdyk got knocked out very early in uh, in game two, and he looks to be he looks to be, from what I've seen so far looks to be done for the postseason, which sucks because he's been a very uh, a very underrated uh, part of the defense. He you know he's done a very very solid job uh, on the third pairing. He's done what's needed. He hasn't made a lot of mistakes. At any time that you have a third pairing defenseman, if you can go a couple of games and not really hear their name a lot, chances are they're doing their job. You know, he's not out there coughing the puck up, making all sorts of errors. So that's it, that's a hit. Uh, thankfully, of course, with the Hurricanes, the defense is uh, is a very deep area 
they've got a very deep pool of talent to draw from with that. So that's a plus. The the negative, I mean, you never want to see somebody get hurt, especially this time of year. Um, but it was, you know, it was early in the game, so the Hurricanes played the vast majority of that game with five defensemen. Um, you also had uh, Saku Manalenin got hurt. He seems to be done for the postseason. Um, you know, Manalenin's a guy that, you know, has not been putting up big offensive numbers, but he's been doing what he's been tasked to do. He's been throwing his weight around. You could see how how irritating he was to to Washington's defenders getting in front of the net, especially after whistles. You know there there was a lot of uh, uh, a lot of scrapping going on that he was around, and uh, the biggest note from from game two was uh, Peter Morazic going going out with an injury. So that's you know for the Hurricanes fans that have followed this team this year. There was, you know, you again, you don't ever want to see somebody get hurt, especially Morozik. He's played incredibly well for this team. He's an, an emotional guy. He's always excited when they win. And you could see, you know, he tweaked something. They're listing his lower body. You know, the speculation could be a groin. It could, you know, we don't know. This time of year, you're not going to find that stuff out. Uh, not till after the playoffs. You're, you're not really going to gonna know any of that stuff. But you could see when he left the game, uh, he was pissed. He was he was not a happy guy. But uh, again, you know, for those that have been following the the Canes this season, they knew that we had a backup and McElhinney that could come in, play composed, play calm. And I, I believe in the in the close to two periods, not quite two periods that, that he played, and he faced seventeen shots and stopped everything. Uh, he did get beat for a few posts, but posts don't even count as shots. So, you know, obviously he did his job. If they got past him and went in the net, that's one thing. They got past him and hit the post. I don't really care. I look at the results at the end of the game. Mac did what he needed to do. And he's such a calm a calm guy. His, his third career, I mean, this is a guy that's been in the league for over a decade. Has been around, played for different teams. Only his third career playoff game. You know, comes in, in in a series at a point where, yes, the Hurricanes won the first game, but it was a squeaker in overtime. You know, coming into another tight game, Cole not had any any playing time. You know, he hasn't played at all during the playoffs. Uh, Mrazic, you know, got a, a pretty fair share of the workload going down the stretch when the Hurricanes were really working to secure that playoff spot. And he, you know, Macklin, he just came in and did what he does. He he did what he's done for this team for the majority of the season, which is to come in, to be calm, to stop pucks. And and you can't you can't overemphasize that enough. This time of year, with such a young team, in a tight series, you've got players dropping left and right. Your starting goalies, you know, had to leave the game with an injury. To have a guy come in that's not only stopping pucks, but is just deadpan calm, has got to help the team out. Now, of course, this team does have other veteran leadership. I mean, you don't have to look any further than the captain, Justin Williams, Mr. Game 7, winner of three Stanley Cups, the first of which, of course, was with the Hurricanes in 2006. Uh, And then I'm going to jump straight to this guy because he he has been a beast. Uh, you know, the Canes fans listening are already going to know the name that's about to come out of my mouth, but it's number 11, Jordan Stahl. Ridiculous. He has been a horse. I mean, down the stretch, his play picked up noticeably. 
in the playoffs so far, the biggest ding on him, and I'd have to look at the, I don't have the numbers pulled up here to look at. I, I think maybe uh, his face-off game has not been quite where where we're all accustomed to seeing it, but he has been strong defensively, laying clean hits. Not, you know, not huge open ice hits, but laying decisive hits to, to separate players from the puck. And when he gets in the other team's zone and along the boards, you know, below the goal line, if he's got the puck, good luck trying to take it away from it. I mean, we've got we've got a Chihuahua, and I can try and take a tennis ball from him, and and that little bastard puts up a vicious fight. You make him, you know, two hundred plus pounds and over six feet tall. That's Jordan Stahl, tenacious. You are not going to get the puck away from him unless he wants you to have it. And it, it, it's been phenomenal. And this team, like I said, just has, there just seems to be this aura around the team. Now, I'm not saying that I think that they're going to win the next two to close out this series. I'm not saying, you know, what I think they will or will not do from this point forward in the playoffs. But again, those of us that have watched this team for, uh, you know, a considerable amount of time know what I'm saying when when I'm saying that there's a feeling about the way things are progressing with them. There's there's not, you know, there's no denying it. You look at the injury problems and everything else that's happened. They just they just man up. They keep and I I'm sorry to use that phrase. I'm not a huge I'm not a huge fan of that phrase, but they they it's always next man up. They'll have somebody new come into the lineup. Maybe it's somebody that played some of the regular season, maybe somebody that's not, that hasn't. But the team shows up and they work. And in the playoffs, that grit, that determination, that work is always going to beat skill. You cannot rely solely on skill in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, if you if you do, you're probably not going to have a very long run unless the unless your entire team is loaded with skill from top to bottom with with few to no gaps. So it it's just been. You know, it's it's been something else to see. Um, speaking on the skill part, you know, we we've seen uh, Teravainen and uh, Niederreiter pick it up here recently. They they've been you know a little quiet so far in the playoffs, much more than than we would have expected up to this point. Um, and there's been uh, Sebastian Ajo, who was unquestionably the best offensive player on this team through the season. I got it still incredibly young and is only going to get better. Um, but he, he has struggled considerably this playoff year. You know, his first experience with NHL playoffs and the, the consensus seems to be that he's, he's battling some kind of a, some kind of a nagging injury, something like that. So I, you know, I'm not here. I'm not going to trash him, especially after what he did for the team during the season. He's out there playing. He's trying to do everything that he can. And he's not been, a liability. So let you know. Hopefully, he he works past whatever it is that's, that's bothering him. Um, you know, because you know, the further this team goes along, the more that they're going to need his offensive contributions. But uh, you know that that that's my piece on that. I just wanted to follow up on that since that's something that had come up um, on an earlier episode of the podcast. Now, moving to the next topic is. Uh, is to deal with with music. Um, you know, I, I'm a guy that is a big fan of. I, I grew up listening to to rock, classic rock, hard rock, heavy metal, 
you know, I, I listen to a little bit of everything, especially the older I get, you know, I, I've kind of branched out a little bit more. But, uh, you know, there's just something about uh, about metal and it's all of its multitude of subgenres that has kept it as my go-to for so long. So I just happened to be browsing uh, online a little while ago and I saw an article from Loudwire that said uh, that heavy metal was the fastest growing music genre in 2018. Now I know anybody out there that just, you know, listens to to mainstream radio, things like that, you're probably shaking your head and saying, you're that's a lie. You're a fucking liar. That is not true. And I agree. I, I, I definitely see that point of view. That's why I don't really listen to the radio. But I would agree with that, with that statement. Uh, I will preface by saying that uh, this article focuses on findings linked to statistics from TuneCore, uh, TuneCore is an independent digital music distribution, publishing, and licensing service. But uh, basically, uh, their their CEO had issued a statement um, based on what they saw on their service. You know, he released the top six most popular genres that they have featured through TuneCore. Uh, number one was, um, I'm sorry, wait, and this is going off of, uh, a percentage growth from the previous year. Just want to throw that in there. So, uh, I'm going to start at the bottom and work my way up. So number six is instrumental, uh, which saw a 42% year over year increase. Uh, world music saw a 57% increase year over year. Uh, K-pop saw a 58% increase. R&B slash soul saw a 68% increase. Then you get up to J-pop, which jumped 133% over the previous year. Top of the list, heavy metal, 154% increase. Now, the since we've established that, you know, this is based off statistics from from this service TuneCore that I'm not familiar with. Maybe some of you out there are. Drop me a comment. Shoot me an email. Let me know, you know, if you use them, if you've got experience, you know, if you're just a listener that uses their service. Um, but I don't know specifically what they classify as as heavy metal. I mean, are they throwing Nickelback in there? Or are we talking about stuff like thrash metal, death metal, stuff like that? Power metal. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what they're basing it off of uh, internally, how their classifications work. Because I don't see anything that specifically calls out uh, rock or anything like that. So uh, I also don't see uh, a standard pop category other than J pop and K pop. I don't see any kind of an, an American pop category. So maybe, maybe stuff from that's getting lumped in there. Maybe it's something strange. Uh, I don't know. Um, but apparently, uh, TuneCore is seeing a lot of growth. They've seen 146% usage growth in Africa over the last year, 52% in Asia. Uh, and that runs all the way down to 31% growth for North America. So that's interesting. So if you're out there, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in a band and you're looking to get your music out there, check out TuneCore. It's a T-U-N-E 
C-O-R-E, just all one word. Uh, you know, it might be something worthwhile for you to check out, uh, you know, if you're an aspiring musician and you're trying to get your music out there to more people. So that's definitely something to, uh, to look into. Uh, speaking about reaching more people, uh, I had a, a brief discussion uh, before we had left for our trip. Um, you know, I'm a, a member, I'm not the most active, but I am a member of the writing community on Twitter. And there are always people that are, that are you know, new to writing in whatever capacity they're trying to do it. All types of age ranges, all types of genres, um, you know, looking to get more exposure to get, you know, to get their stuff out there, to have their work hosted on different sites, available for sale at different places. Um, I will preface this by saying that this is not any kind of a paid endorsement or sponsorship. This is just me speaking from experience. Uh, cause naturally a lot of people go to Amazon Amazon's the biggest marketplace in the world. They have their line of Kindle e-readers. You can go through, upload a book there. Uh, they have software that you can download to, to actually get things edited and fit down specifically for Kindle publishing. You can turn around and use that to create a paperback. So a lot of people gravitate towards Amazon, and that's, uh, you know, I'm that's completely fine. However... Uh, there is a company called Draft to Digital, and that's uh, Draft D R A F T, the number two, and then Digital. That basically works with uh, several platforms, including Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple, Kobo, and even library services and different things like that, where you can upload one copy of the book there, uh, put all your information, and everything in, put your pricing details. And then it goes through the process of publishing it to all those various retail outlets. So one of the biggest one of the biggest benefits with using a service like Draft Digital, which is free to use, um, of course, you know you they they do keep a, a small percentage um, from the sales. Actually, you know what? I'm not sure that they actually do. Um, aside from what comes to you from um, you know from the retailers themselves so I, I'd have to double check that to be a hundred percent sure anyway getting sidetracked but uh, with that you don't have to keep track of going into Amazon Barnes and Noble Apple all these different sites to track your to track your sales to track anything like that it's all You've got one sales dashboard. Everything is right there in one place. So if you are already dealing with these different sites and you haven't tried Draft to Digital, it could be something worthwhile to look into uh, just to save you from having to bounce around and check multiple outlets. Uh, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I will say if you're big on Amazon, uh, Amazon is a little bit funny sometimes at working with outside distributors. Um, I had actually submitted... My horror, my horror, Jesus, why can I never say that? My horror anthology uh, to Amazon originally using draft to digital and it's set for over a week, didn't get anywhere. So I canceled that out and then just went straight through on Amazon by myself. That's the first time I tried to use Amazon with draft to digital. 
didn't go out too well, but uh, definitely, definitely something that's uh, that's worth keeping in mind. Um, with that, for all the writers out there, definitely take a look at Draft the Digital. Plus, you know, some people strictly look at uh, at Amazon and they're like, well, you know, I can earn a, a high royalty percentage. I can earn for pages read and, and, and things like that. And that's true. You can. And like I said, I'm not going to slight Amazon in, at all. Um, however, you know, if, if you go through and you configure your keywords and stuff and you're getting a lot of traffic and then they change something in an algorithm and then that drops off, if that's your primary source of income, you know, that can really throw you off. If you've got backups, you know, there are people out there that will go through the iBook store that use uh, Kobo's and go through the Kobo store. And Kobo's got an agreement in place with Walmart right now. Um, there's actually a specific Walmart page that's got the, the Kobo ebook stuff up there. So if you have anything published on Kobo, you can find it that way as well. Um, same thing with Barnes & Noble. You know, they've got the Nook. People use that. You know, they're looking for materials. So it never hurts to, to branch out and, and, and to keep it spread around. Of course, from Amazon's perspective, you know, they have the the KD the KDP Select tier, which for those that aren't familiar, you can earn uh, higher royalty incomes, and and there are other benefits, promotions, stuff that you can run. Uh, however, they request that for the entire time that any of your books are registered in that program, that they are not available for sale in that digital format anywhere else any other websites, or even your own website. Um, and, of course, you can register that individually for each book that you've got. Um, you cannot cancel it on the spot. You can take it off of, because it automatically renews for every period. You can turn that off and then just not opt back into it. But just bear that in mind, because if you do have a book registered in KDP Select and they find it online, say, through Barnes & Noble or somewhere else, they can they can uh, definitely drop that off there and cause you some problems. I can't speak to that directly because it hasn't happened to me, um, but I have heard horror stories about it happening to to other writers out there. So just keep that in mind. Um, the other thing um, that I wanted to touch on from the the writer perspective is with audiobooks. When I was working on my first novel. You know, same thing as trying to get the podcast on iTunes. People would ask me, oh, well, you know, you're going to do an audio book. And, you know, it had kind of occurred to me, but having never done it, I had absolutely no idea how to go about it. Um, it was actually, <laughs> oddly enough, it was actually through using Draft to Digital. Uh, one of their partners... Uh, led me to an ad for ACX. Uh, and ACX is, it's owned by Amazon. Uh, it works in conjunction with Audible, which is, uh, I'm pretty sure, the biggest audiobook retailer that there is. Apple might be up there with them, but, you know, it, it, it's all pretty close. Uh, but the good thing is with ACX, uh, you can do an exclusive distribution arrangement, which basically means that you can't sell it on your own, but they'll automatically list it through Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So right off the bat, you've got the three biggest markets with audiobooks. Uh, now, if you don't like the exclusivity part, uh, 
you don't have to opt in for that. Um, and then likewise, you know, if you're like me, if you're an indie author and you don't just walk around with, you know, $100 bills falling out of your ass every few seconds, you can actually submit an audition script. Um, and then the description of the narrator, if you're looking for uh, a man, for a woman, uh, an age range, any type of accent, certain types of delivery, depending on the material. Um, but once you get that done, you can actually set it uh, as a royalty share, which basically, say you make $10 for every audiobook that you sell, $5 goes to you, $5 goes to the narrator. So that way, uh, if the narrator, you know, obviously if they're looking at that type of project, then they're okay with a royalty share set up. As long as you are, then that's a way that you can get in without having to shell out anything overhead. You know, you're not having to pay narrator fees. You're not having to pay flat out of pocket. Uh, of course, if you've got the means to do it, you know, you can track down a narrator or just put up the audition um, and then just do the, the rate, whatever rate the narrator charges. You can do it that way. Or if you've already got, uh, you know, recorded files for all your chapters and everything, then uh, you can verify its content against their guidelines and you can submit that for review to them without having to go through the process of, uh, of auditioning a narrator or doing anything like that. Um, doing the audiobook for Bermuda was the, the first experience I had with it. Um, luckily, I, I had a narrator who was experienced. Um, he was very prompt in getting everything done. You know, we had discussed a, a time frame, and he was right on having everything done. Um, when, when I got to review the end product, there were just a couple of small things, and I touched base with him with, and, you know, within a day, he was on having the stuff taken care of and re-uploaded. Um, gentleman by the name of Fred Greenspan. So, if, you know, if you've heard the Bermuda audiobook, or if you're thinking about it, you know, personally, I think he did a phenomenal job. And and with me, and it's tough because when you create something, uh, you know, especially as a writer, and especially when, you know, I, everything is really visual to me. I'm thinking of everything, you know, I, I'm imagining it as I'm writing it. And when I first heard his audition, it did completely mesh with what I had in mind. But that's a part of also why I went with him because I'm, you know, I was thinking, well you know, I've got this in mind a certain way. And honestly, I'm probably not going to find everything 100% that no matter what. Even if I did it myself, probably still wouldn't be 100% of that. And I started to think about it. I was like, well, he's he's definitely putting, he's investing in himself into the performance, which is first and foremost, because you don't ever want to deal with somebody that, that you think is half-assing it. Um, which obviously I don't believe that he was. I'm satisfied with the way that it came out. I would definitely recommend uh, ACX.com to, to anybody. Again, not a paid endorsement. I'm not getting any money or preferential treatment. Uh, just a, a little advice to anybody that's out there that, that's wondering about, you know, putting out an audiobook, uh, you know, of an existing work that they've got. Uh, I, I'm also doing auditions. I've received a few that I've been sorting through uh, for the horror anthology. And for those keeping score at home, I just said that for the first time in this podcast series, I got it right the first time. That's the first time that's happened. So mark your calendars on that. April 30th, that happened. Um, 
but I, I'm working on getting the horror anthology uh, done as an audio book. I would do it myself, but, you know, through the course of a day, trying to get stuff written and things like that, even though it's a, a novella, I just don't don't really have the time to get it done the way that I would like to. And it would be the same as me writing a manuscript. I'm going to sit here and agonize over the smallest things for about five years, and it's never going to get done. And nobody's ever going to see me, and my son's going to be like, where the hell is my dad at? He's been gone for five years. It's just going to turn into a, a mountain of shit. So I'm putting it out there for the professional narrators uh, you know, to try out, to take a look at the audition script, see if they like the material, if it's something they're interested in, and then, you know, just move it along from that point. I'll let them do what they're good at, and I'll do what I at least think that I'm somewhat good at, which is just sticking to the writing and getting all that taken care of. So, uh, you know, just two pieces uh, of advice from somebody that's gone down those roads before. You know, if you're a writer... No matter what age, no matter what experience level, you know, if you're publishing ebooks, consider draft to digital if you have not already. Gives you access to multiple online storefronts through one dashboard, a single upload of the document file. You're not having to check up on however many different sites that you sell through. Um, and then if you want to produce an audiobook. Um, for any works that you've got, visit acx.com. Um, they work, like I said, they'll upload it through uh, Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. So the three biggest markets for audiobooks you'll be set up on. Um, and it can be done in such a way that you're not paying anything up front, you know, that it can just be drawn directly to the narrator, uh, you know, their share of the royalties. So. You want an audiobook done if you've really got something written and you really, really want to have it in audiobook form, but you you don't like your voice, you don't think that you can do it, you've tried and you've had problems with it. Well, I mean, you just legitimately, like I said, you just might not have the time. Check out ACX. Um, you know, you've got nothing to lose except a little bit of time. Um, but I will say that it was a kick uh, for me, the first, you know, hearing somebody that I don't know, read stuff that I've written. It was just a kick, you know, not an ego trip type of thing, but it's just like, wow. So that's what, that's what this crazy shit that I write sounds like when somebody else says it out loud. Okay. So it's, you know, it's definitely uh, an interesting, interesting thing to keep in mind. Moving along from that, um, you know, one, one thing, um, I, I've pretty much abstained from, from discussing by and large, uh, both here and on social media, is politics. And that's by and large because both sides have a tendency to piss me off. <laughs> I, I don't like uh, hypocrisy. I don't like blatant lies. And I, I really am not a fan of the idea of a career politician. I just don't, I don't trust that. Uh, and what I'm about to get into it really only grazes the outer edges of politics. But um, it, it encompasses something that's fascinated me for, for a very long time. And, uh, you know, there, there's a big push worldwide to cut down on carbon emissions. Um, you know, and regardless of what your thoughts are on that, on any of this other stuff, um, 
you know, it, it's something that, you know, a lot of people were given a lot of serious thought and a lot of serious discussion to. Um, you know, people are always looking at renewables like wind and solar. Um, unfortunately, those do have their own drawbacks. One of the big things that's getting pushed in lieu of all of that is getting back to more of a focus on nuclear power. Now, on its face, that argument makes sense in the fact that, you know, a properly run nuclear power plant, you know, is does not emit much in the way of, uh, of carbon into the atmosphere. Now, the process of of mining everything and getting them built is a different story. But, um, you know, the operation of the plant itself is not, you know, is not churning out smoke. It's not churning out what we typically think of when we think of uh, plants and factories pumping out pollution and, and black smoke and stuff like that. Um, so there has been more of a focus on that. And, the, you know, there are people that um, that of course are, are are opposed to that idea, and it's it's a really nuanced subject to get into. Um, I mean, if, if for anybody that's listening that's not really familiar with how a nuclear power plant works, I'm going to boil it down. And of course, I'm no expert. I'm not a nuclear physicist, but it, you know it's something that's held my interest um, for some time. So I just, just I'm going to give you the, even below a layman's explanation. But it basically just uses uh, a controlled, quote unquote, nuclear reaction uh, to superheat water. The steam that it turns into is used to turn a turbine which generates electricity so at the end of the day it's just you know it, it it comes down to boiling water produce steam use that steam to generate electricity seems simple enough um it honestly it's in in a perfect world where all the nuclear plants are very well designed and thought out, which, I mean, even the older ones that are out now had backup systems to backup systems. Um, but you follow that that level of detail in the planning stages with construction and have them operated by well-trained professionals, in an ideal world, that would be that would be where it ended. You could submit a license, have it get approved if it did, begin construction, you know, get everything up and running, and then you wouldn't have to think about it. Oh, they're just over there boiling water. Nothing to worry about. They're making electricity by turning water into steam. No big deal. Even in a best-case scenario where everything consistently goes right, there's no machine error there's no human error. The big question remains of what you do with the waste. Um, once the fuel rods are 
exhausted enough that they can no longer adequately be a part of creating that chain reaction. You know, they're, they're stored, most plants are stored in cooling pools. But then what happens when those become overrun or where it's time to move them out? There have been discussion going going back at least a couple of decades about turning uh, Yucca Mountain into a repository for spent nuclear fuel. And that hasn't materialized. And I mean, honestly, you know, it being opposed by the people that live, you know, in that area, I can't blame them. Because this, you know, it's not the same as having a nuclear bomb go off. But you're talking about stuff, some of which has an incredibly long half-life, um, and in such quantities that the radiation would be I mean, could be lethal to countless people over who knows how large of an area. It depends on the amount of the material and it depends on which way the wind's blowing. It could cause all sorts of problems. So I, I understand that. The bottom line, though, becomes what do we do with that spent fuel? I'm, now, there are people out there that are light years beyond me not only in standard intelligence, but but in this nuclear portion of it. And maybe they're working on ways that some of that could even be recycled or reused somehow. I don't know. It's not my forte. It's not my field. I'm just an interested onlooker. I'm standing on the sidelines, not going to tell anybody how to do their job, because I don't know. Just kind of musing on everything. That's the biggest, you know, the biggest problem in a world where everything goes 100% according to plan. Now, unfortunately, as we all know, life doesn't work that way. In this country, uh, just over 40 years now, as a matter of fact, I believe the, the 40th anniversary just passed within the last week or so, um, was the, the, uh, the partial meltdown at Three Mile Island. Uh, of course, Three Mile Island uh, is is a is a small island located in the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've actually been past the plant. I've got family um, in 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 the southern part of Pennsylvania, and have been up to Harrisburg and Hershey numerous times. And when you you can see the cooling towers, I haven't really been up close to it. Um. You know, but I've seen it, and I, it, it fascinated me because I knew a little bit at the time about what had happened there. And, uh, of course, you know, shoot me a comment if I'm wrong, but uh, my overall understanding of what happened there was, uh, you know, a faulty valve. At the end of the day, a faulty valve is what started everything. You know, uh, I'm not going to say uh, an unnecessary part, but a, a small and relatively inexpensive part Um of the cooling system failed and the reactor and the plant on its own started to do what needed to be done. Uh, but it was human intervention that exacerbated the situation. And of course, once again, that's not me pointing the finger at anybody because it's one thing to know, okay, well in this type of situation, the plant is going to run itself. It's going to correct what needs to be corrected. So that the whole thing doesn't blow up. That's one thing to know that, but if you're a thinking human being in the control room of a nuclear power plant and you have got 
alarms blaring all around you, uh, lights flashing and things like that, your first instinct is not going to be just to sit back, kick your feet up on a desk, and drink some coffee. You're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? This is bad. What do we need to do? Unfortunately, their reaction was the wrong reaction. Um, you know, they thought the reactor was going solid, which is a term for when there, there's too much cooling water and it basically chokes off the entire process. So to combat that, they cut off the flow of water with the cooling system uh, and began to expose the core. Um, again, you know, the core is made up of uranium rods and then control rods, which are basically inserted when you need to slow and stop the reaction. If the uranium rods are left to their own device without any way of cooling, they will superheat, they'll begin to melt, hence the term meltdown. All sorts of bad shit can happen, not just radiation. Um, you can have a, a, a full-blown meltdown. Um, some of you might be familiar with the term the China Syndrome. If not, maybe you've heard of the movie. Um, but that phrase was originally coined because, hypothetically, should a nuclear reactor core melt down and go through the concrete and the floor of the reactor building and through everything else, it would go into the ground, fracturing the ground until it hit a like a water table somewhere. In which case, steam would go out in all directions, could pop up in driveways, down the streets, in fields, and there would just be plumes of radioactive smoke, or I'm sorry, radioactive steam just shooting up like geysers, like Old Faithful coming out of the ground. And then when you factor in that Three Mile Island sits in the middle of a, a, a river that serves a, a pretty fair portion of the state of Pennsylvania, you can imagine what might have happened had something like that come to pass. Um, so and, and it was something that went on for days. It wasn't just like a one-and-done thing, and it's, okay, well, this is what happened. We got it taken care of. No. It, it, it went on and on. Um, there was so much confusion that, uh, that President Carter actually sent uh, a high-ranking member of the NRC to, to oversee, you know, basically at first to get in there and give his on-site assess assessment to what was happening um, so that information could be relayed to Pennsylvania's governor, back to President Carter, so there was no no taint from the the power company that owned the plant. Because up to that point, the spokesperson they had, which was from the power company, was kind of combative, kind of defensive, and it was not a, not a good look. Not a good look for anybody. Um, especially when you've got reporters and civilians that are, are wondering, you know, is this plant that we were told was safe? Is it about to explode? Yeah, are we going to die? And and you know, people were learning with radiation. There, you know, it's not you don't just see some mystical green cloud floating toward you, and you're like, oh shit, get in the car, we've got to get the fuck out of here. If it's strong enough, you know, a lot of people report, you know, like a metallic taste, and you can kind of smell it a little bit. But I mean, honestly, if you're not paying attention for it, you would probably never notice. And it goes through your body, it goes through your cells and your bones and everything. It can cause cancer. It can cause mutations in DNA. Um, 
not even to mention when you get into to, to radiation sickness, when you're talking about vomiting, internal organs cooking, radiation burns where your skin's basically burning from the inside. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a pretty sight. It's not something that anybody wants to think about. And, and for the people in, you know, uh, Middletown is the town, I believe, where the plant is located. And there were towns directly around it where all these people were, you know, they were kind of hanging in the wind for the better part of a week wondering what the hell is going on, what's about to happen. And it's, you know, I, I, according to a lot of people after the fact, the you know, the plant was... The reactor and its its self preservation systems were well on the way to to making sure that that what almost happened didn't happen and that the human intervention is what caused it to get to the point that it did. Um, I bet. I mean, the bottom line is it happened. I mean, yeah, you know, forty years. It's longer than I've been on the Earth, but at the same time, that's really when you look at the technology and stuff like that that era moving through, you know, it, it wasn't that far back. It's not like it was in its complete infancy and something like this happened. Um, but that was in, I believe, April of 79. Uh, a few years later, they actually were able to send a, a robotic camera into the reactor to, to get a look, and they saw that, indeed, there there had been, uh, you know, a, a partial meltdown. So, I mean, it could have been infinitely worse, than uh, than what actually happened. I mean, they they still nobody really seems to know for sure exactly how much radiation escaped, uh, where exactly it went, or what the long term side effects were. There are quote unquote official studies that haven't linked any deaths to it at any point. Uh, but then again, there's a lot of people that that question those statistics. And uh, I mean, the sad thing is, you know, having it been forty years down the road now, we're probably not ever going to know the uh, the true repercussions of that. Um, but thankfully, thankfully or not, depending on how you want to look at it, that's the worst it's gotten for us here in the United States. Uh, you know, seven years after that, uh, there was an accident that was far worse and had far larger implications for a, a greater area. Uh, and that, of course was the uh, the VI Lenin power station, uh, better known to most is the Chernobyl power station. Um, it was in the, the spring of 1986. They were running a test, um, basically a low-power test, to try and keep uh, the reactor and the turbine running while they waited for emergency generators to kick on. Um, things started to get out of control. Um and with a nuclear reaction, it does not take, you know, when you're talking about a chain reaction of that type, it doesn't take long for things to start to get, uh, start to get sideways. Um, and it seems that uh, one of the one of the control room operators uh, hit a master control to drop all the control rods, which I believe in that reactor were uh, were graphite rods, which basically slow down the nuclear reaction until it can be brought to a, brought to a stop. Um, the problem is those particular types of rods, when they are, when they first touch the water can generate a a small surge in power. Um, and from that point, 
the reactor basically exploded. Uh, and one thing, one thing to note is, uh, like Three Mile Island, um, and then all the other nuclear plants in the United States, uh, you have control rooms, and then you've got the reactor rooms, and they're typically the reactors are in containment buildings. There's concrete, very thick concrete, uh, to help prevent the escape of radiation, things like that. So they're they're gen generally they're they're pretty secure. Um, the the Chernobyl plant not so much. Um, I don't know the specifics uh, of exactly how the outer building was was built, but I mean you can do a search on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't do it yet, or you can open a new tab. But you can look up uh, the aftermath, and it is absolutely it's mind blowing. What that what that reactor building looked like afterwards, um, but tons of I mean it blew the the concrete lid off of off of the reactor building. I mean it just flipped it like like you or me flipping a quarter on our thumb. Uh, untold. I mean, who knows how much radiation escaped immediately? Um, and of course, you know that time the Soviet Union. Uh, you know they were they were tight lipped. They didn't like to uh, they didn't like to tell a lot, uh, especially when it was uh, such a monumental fuck up as what happened at Chernobyl. Um, in Sweden, they had employees arriving for work at a nuclear plant there that were testing at much higher levels of radiation. Nothing lethal at that point, but much higher than normal. Um, you know, and they looked at weather reports and they looked at things like that. And they said, well, you know, it looks like those, it looks like those Soviets, they, they blew something up. Something over there is fucked and it's coming this way. Um, and eventually, um, some of the state run news came out and said so much as that there was an, an, an incident, but you know, things were under control. Things were fine. Um, which was of course, complete bullshit, <laughs> a complete snow job. um, they did end up evacuating the city of Pripyat, which was uh, next to the facility. It was basically a, a city built to house all the people that worked at the plant, their families. Um, but uh, unfortunately, unlike what happened at Three Mile Island, a lot of people died. Uh, more than we will probably ever know. The, the absolute number of just for the simple fact that you you had the workers that were there um, any of them that died immediately because of the explosion and that huge surge of radiation um, those that died in the days and weeks after because of their exposure uh, and radiation sickness taking its toll on them um, you know people down the down the road that that developed all types of of, you know, be it thyroid cancers or cancers in other parts of their bodies. Um, and then you had the men that, that, uh, that came to be known as the liquidators. Um, if anybody's ever seen footage of the aftermath at Chernobyl, um, they, they've seen the men in the, like in the, the, the lead lined aprons with the, the black hoods and the gas masks that were, you know, shoveling out debris, trying to basically trying to, trying to take care of the situation to make sure it didn't get worse. Um, 
you know, and the, and what they were wearing was not. When you talk about that level of radiation, and the amount of time that they were exposed to it, you know, how many of those men died? You know, and and, and the the worst thing to me to think about is how many of them went in there or were sent in there not knowing exactly how dangerous it was. Did, did they know that there was a very, very high probability that they were being marched into their deaths? And I'm not saying that they would not have gone otherwise, but it's one thing to send somebody into a situation like that blindly without them knowing, as opposed to somebody being told, Hey, it is imperative that we handle this, but there is a very good chance that you're not going to, you're not going to survive. And then letting them decide, I, you know, I don't care. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to do this. There's a big difference. Not saying an accusation just kind of makes me, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think about, uh, if all of them knew what they were getting into, uh, they had helicopters flying in sand, helicopters flying in lead, uh, getting enormous doses of, of radiation because, I mean, there are overhead shots where you could still see. It almost looks like the cherry of a cigarette under a pile of sticks where the reactor was still red hot. And there was just radiation spewing straight up into the air. Um, and at such rates that, you know, it would not take long to take its toll on your body. And then, of course, uh, you know, they built a containment building outside of it, which was done hastily to try and, you know, to, to put up a barrier between that, that damaged reactor and, and the rest of the environment. Um, and there, there's since been a, a movable, much more well-designed piece uh, built for it to be more of a long-term solution. Um but I mean, uh, uh, you know, a, a terrible situation, you know, I, I wasn't in the control room, so I couldn't tell you exactly what led things to happen without it being complete speculation. But, uh, you know, it, it just something shitty and it shows you the absolute worst that can happen with a situation like that. And then of course, uh, you know, eight years ago, I don't know what it is about the the springtime and these these nuclear accidents. Uh, it just makes me a little a uh, little antsy for summer to get here now. But uh, you know, and uh, what was it, March two thousand eleven? Um, after the Japanese earthquake, the the tsunami, you had the incident at Fukushima where basically every actor there got raked over to coals and just completely fucking. I mean, honestly, I don't know what amount of complete detail we'll get on that anytime soon because you look at the way that that plant was built right at the, you know, right at the edge of the ocean. And yes, they, they had a seawall built. And when that tsunami came through, it didn't give not nary a fuck. It just went, knocked out the, uh, the emergency generators so they could not keep the reactors cool. It's just... It's, it's one of those things, you know, you cannot fault, you know, a country like Japan for wanting to put their technical expertise to use, wanting to, to try to embrace nuclear power. But, it, you know, it's, it's one thing when you've got that much nuclear material 
in a reactor, uh, the, the stored fuel waste rods, and you've got an area that's prone to earthquakes, that's prone to tsunamis, just to the layman outsider, it does not look like the spot that I would choose to build four nuclear reactors. But again, I'm not here to blame. I'm not. I'm just just trying to look at the bigger picture because there are people that want to make a push. You know, after after the the Fukushima incident, there were countries that are, that were like, "Fuck nuclear power. We're done with the shit." You know, fire up a coal plant, do this, do that. We're done with nuclear because it's just we can't. So it, it's a it's a really. Um, I mean, I really admire the technology. It's you know, like it is a fancy way to boil water, but it's. You think about the the work and the thought that went into to every theory around around getting that to work. All the test reactors they've had over the years. I can respect the thought. I can respect the science. But it's just one of those things where, like I said at the beginning of this, even in the absolute best situation, you've still got to contend with a large amount of nuclear waste. And it's going to be around for a long time. Um, and in the worst situation, I mean, the worst we've seen right now, it's still killed a lot of people. It's, it's, you know, made areas uninhabitable and, you know, even Chernobyl was only, uh, you know, um, 33 years ago, Fukushima was eight. We don't know what the long-term effects are going to be outside of that immediate area. So... It, it, it's just food for thought, and that's not meant to, to try and scare somebody out of ever considering nuclear power. It's just, you know, if you're going to make an argument for something, you need to know the pros and the cons. And I know that's not a very in-depth list, but it's just, you know, an overview of things that, that have to be thought about. So, I mean, you know, what do you guys think? What are your thoughts on nuclear power? Have you gotten into a discussion with a, a friend or a family member, or anybody else, um, you know, think about what what kind of uh, you know what kind of pushback there is. Maybe you're on one side of the fence or the other. Um, you know, tell me your thoughts on it. Why you believe it the way that you do? Um, you know, because stuff like this, you've got to have a discussion. You know, this is not a dictatorship. We don't get you know. There's not one person that gets to tell us what's going to happen. You know, we we need to discuss things. Even things that are ugly and nasty need to be, need to be, you know, need to be discussed. Need to be at least thought about. And this is something where, you know, this country uses a hell of a lot of electricity, and, uh, you know, something something's going to be done at some point. You know, we just have to decide, um, you know, what side of the fence you come down on, in terms of that. Uh, the last thing, uh, at, le- at least I think the last thing, um, last topic I want to get into um, is a story that broke actually while we were while we were at the beach last week, um, and that is the uh, <clears throat> the I seventy crash uh, outside of Denver that happened uh, Thursday of last week that left, uh, left four people dead. And if you've seen any of the video of it, it was terrifying. I mean, the thought of a, an out of control truck plowing into a group of, of cars like that, it almost, 
seems like a miracle that that the, the amount of casualties wasn't higher than what it was. Of course, you know, I'm thankful that it wasn't. And, uh, you know, my heart aches for the families of those that, that lost their loved ones in this situation. Um, you know, I, and I took extra note uh, of, of this accident, um, because I've got, I've got family in Colorado in Colorado Springs in Denver, you know, in different areas out there. Um, one of which is my aunt who was actually at the beach with us. Um, you know, when we saw the, the breaking story on this, um, and of course there'd been a lot of speculation about what could have happened. Um, but what caught my eye this morning is a, a news story from uh, the denverchannel.com. Uh, and the headline states that the company that, uh, that the truck driver that, that caused the accident works for uh, has got past federal violations for brakes as well as the English proficiency of their drivers. Um, so the first part of that... Um, Obviously, you know, with the brakes is the fact that, it, you know, it's not something that can be taken lightly because trucking is a huge part of this, this nation's economy, getting goods moved around. Um, and if you've got a company, and, I, you know, I don't know anybody that works there. I don't know any of the ownership. But when you've got a company, and Graham, I mean, this is a small company, uh, you know, it says that they employ five drivers and five trucks. So it's not a huge company, but if they have flaunted regulations regarding safety in the past, I, I think this is going to be the end of them right here because you cannot have, you can't, even if you only run one truck, if you don't take the time to make sure that that the vehicles that you're putting on the road, the the trailers that that are being utilized, and I, I know depending on how your setup is, you might be you might be hauling trailers that belong to a third party. I understand that portion, but at least from the truck standpoint, you've got to make sure that things are up to snuff. Um, now, this particular stretch of I seventy, I am not familiar with. Um, however, the article does say. Um, that over the past two years, the company that uh, employed this truck driver were hit with 30 safety violations, including those for brake issues and drivers having a weak grasp of English. Now, some people might be saying, well, what the hell does that have to do with it? Well, if you're coming up into a major populated area and depending on the type of road and where it's at and what kind of uh, grade that it is, you know, there, there might be signs that indicate specific things directed at truck drivers. And if the driver doesn't notice those or is not sure exactly what those signs are telling him, they're not going to be able to follow what's on that sign. That's not saying that that's the driver's fault, but the company shouldn't be putting people in a situation where they're, they're being set up to fail. And that goes for any country. If you've got, if you're, in Brazil, and you can't read Portuguese, and there's a sign on the road in Portuguese that tells you, you better check your damn brakes, there's a, a brake check right here, anything that's safety 
the safety related regarding that and you can't read it, you're going to have a bad time. You're not going to be set up to do a good job. Um, and then with the break part, I mean, who the hell knows what the rationale is behind not taking care of what you're supposed to take care of. Now, was the driver being reckless? We don't really know yet. There's been somebody that's come out that shows moments before the truck got there and it was moving at a, a pretty fair clip, especially when we consider that there were so many vehicles that were stationary at the time. Um, but I mean, had he been speeding prior? Had the brakes already failed? Um, because I mean, it seems a little hard to imagine that if you know that your brakes have failed and you see what's coming up, that you're going to go straight into, and granted, I don't have his point of view, what he saw, but you know, you would think that if you were being completely attentive, you, you know, you wouldn't go straight for a, a cluster of stationary vehicles. Um, and of course you're in a situation where if the brakes had already been found out to have failed, you're talking about heart rate going through the ceiling, pissing your pants, not knowing what the hell you're going to do. I mean, it's a shit situation. And the fact that this company has has averaged 15 safety violations a year over the last two years doesn't look good on them. Doesn't look good at all. Um, you know, and unfortunately, we've got four people that are you know they didn't get the they didn't get to come home that night. They, you know, their, their life was cut off right at that point. And, uh, I mean, that's the kind of shit that pisses me off if it comes back that this was another situation where this company was lax on the rules. You know, a regular accident where nobody gets hurt is one thing, but when you're talking about people losing their lives because of laziness or just being fucking cheap, that's the kind of shit that we, we cannot abide by. And when I say we, I just mean people. I don't give a shit what party that you're affiliated with. I don't give a shit what any of your beliefs are. This is the kind of thing that cannot be tolerated. If people flaunt the rules, they've got to be held accountable. You don't have a right to own a business. If you own a business and you keep fucking up and people die, guess what? That's it for you. That's not just giving somebody food poisoning. That's not selling, uh, you know, uh, a hamburger made from beef that eh, maybe it might have gone out yesterday, but eh, we'll kind of see. Not that you should be doing that shit. If anybody's listening to me thinking about doing that, don't fucking do that. But when you're talking about putting a several ton projectile filled with diesel fuel on a crowded interstate... And the brakes aren't working properly? What the fuck are you doing? That's not something that you can excuse. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be hesitant to come out and start swinging the blame stick around. But 30 violations over two years, including brake violations? And then you have an issue where, a, you know, a truck looks like it was a runaway sped into a group of barely moving vehicles and caused this catastrophe, it's kind of hard to see it any other way. I mean, there's there's not... I don't see a whole lot of gray area with this right now. You know, beforehand, it was, it was one thing. Who knows what, have ha what, what might have happened? But then you see that the company that owned the truck has just been, you know, 
piss in the wind when it comes to being safe. Definitely, definitely not a not a, a good look for them to be in at all. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I've got friends and family that drive and have driven, you know, big trucks and things like that. And in my experience, yeah, I've run into some real stupid fucking dipshits that drive trucks. They don't seem to pay attention to shit. And they are worse than people in a, in a, in a station wagon or in a hatchback because their vehicle can do a shitload of legitimate damage. Having said that, usually when I see a big truck on the road, in my personal experience, I know it's anecdotal, so it doesn't mean shit in the grand scheme of things. Typically, they're some of the more cautious drivers. If they see a slowdown, they're going to slow down as far ahead as they can because they know that they're pulling a lot of weight and they need room to stop. Most of the ones that I've interacted with on the road don't just blindly change lanes. Um, you know, they, they try to play by the rules because they know that their life is at stake. Theirs and, uh, you know, just about everybody else around them. In a situation like this, I mean, we don't know what part exactly the driver played at this point, but it's looking more and more like the company he worked for didn't give a shit, didn't care. I don't know how severe these previous 30 infractions were. Obviously, they weren't punished enough depending upon what the infractions were. I can promise you their asshole is going to be hurt after this one. There's just, there's no way around it. I mean, you know, to, to put, to put your employee and everybody on that road, because this could have happened. I mean, granted there were other situations going on in the area that caused the traffic to slow down. But I mean, you think about all the other places this truck could have gone through where something like this could have happened. Maybe it would have been worse. Maybe it would have been a, a minor incident in another spot. Doesn't make a difference. You don't put, you don't put a vehicle on the road like that if it's not roadworthy. And, you know, I, I've got a feeling their their maintenance records are already getting checked. They're already being gone over with a fine tooth comb. And uh, you know, if something's missing, if something doesn't pass the sniff test, they are fucked, and they should be. If I ran a company like that and something like this happened on my watch, I would expect the full brunt of everything to come down on my head. And that's the way that it is. That's why I do this. That's why I write. Because the damage that I can do is is pretty minimal compared to a lot of things. So it's just, you know, it's, it's tragic because, you know, had things been done properly... This would not have happened. And I know that that bad shit, tragic shit happens all day, everywhere, all over the globe. That doesn't mean that you can't give a shit about something like this. And I absolutely despise when people try to, oh yeah, but what about the so-and-so and the blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's bad. This is also bad. They don't wash each other out. You can think about more than one thing at a time. Granted, some of the people that say shit like that probably are incapable of thinking of one thing without it having to push something out the other side of their fucking brain. But that's a discussion for another day. Um, as for this day in, uh, in uh, sunny Greenville, North Carolina, uh, I thank you guys for joining me again, as I always do. 
you know, I hope the rambling didn't didn't affect you too much in a negative way. Uh, and as you can tell, I, I'm getting to the point more where I'm going to try and branch out on different things per episode and not not try to pinpoint it on one small thing, which, I mean, it seems like common sense. If you're going to do a podcast and you want an episode to be more than 20 minutes, you're gonna you're either going to have to run one thing into the ground or, uh, you know, you're going to have to talk about a few things. Um, so bearing that in mind, like I said, over the next couple of weeks, uh, keep an eye, if you're an Apple user, keep an eye on Apple Podcasts because I'm going to try and get uh, the first three episodes condensed into one so I can get that submitted there. Uh, I really have no idea how in the hell long this one is, so we'll uh, <laughs> we'll find that out soon enough. Um, if you're watching, well, quote-unquote watching on YouTube, leave a comment, uh, your thoughts on anything we discussed, be it uh, music, be it publishing or audiobooks, um, the whole thing with nuclear power, um, the, the crash in Colorado last Thursday, or, it, you know, if you've got something that you would like to hear discussed here, shoot a comment. Uh, same thing if you pull up on SoundCloud. There! Okay, I can talk. Uh, you know, leave me a comment there. Uh, my email is jebbohn at gmail.com. So you can shoot me a line there if you can think of a topic that you want to, you want to hear discussed, your, your thoughts, things like that. Um... The reminder, as always, if you swing by my website, which is jebbond.net, uh, you can sign up for my mailing list, get my uh, every month or so email newsletter. Um, but if you sign up now, you will get a free download for an ebook copy of my horror anthology novella titled Random Synapse Misfire. Uh, it's got three, three shortish stories. One of which is called the Night Ferry, which, interestingly enough, took place uh, on one of the ferry routes that we took while we were at the beach. Uh, thankfully, no fucked up shit happened to us on that journey. <laughs> but, uh, you know, feel free to, to stop by there. Uh, go back, check out the rest of the website. You can find the podcast there, my blog, online store. You want to buy any books? paperbacks, ebooks, any of that good stuff. You want to drop me a line and tell me I suck. You want to drop me a line and tell me that you want to catch a beer. I don't know how the hell you catch a beer. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about anymore. My throat's getting dry and my brain's starting to fall asleep. But uh, feel free to check all that stuff out. Uh, until next time, I will see you later. Have a great afternoon or evening, night, morning, whatever it is for you.